20 years ago, Odyssey changed the putting game when they introduced the white-hot insert. Now the most iconic, most played, and most sought-after putter insert of all time is back in the new white-hot OG. White-hot OG has the same mythical combination of sound, feel, and performance as the original, but with modern upgrades that are available in classic head shapes like the 2-ball, the Rossi, and the number 7. White-hot OG, legendary then, iconic now. See the new lineup at CallawayGolf.ca. An Alberta woman who admitted to fatally shooting her husband is now fighting to have her 18-year sentence for manslaughter reduced. In 2017, Helen Naslin admitted to shooting her abusive husband Miles in the head in 2011 and hiding his body with the help of one of their sons. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. Edmonton Journal Justice reporter Johnny Wakefield joins me to discuss the events that led to the killing, why the sentence was as long as it is, and why Helen's appeal is arguing the sentence shows the justice system doesn't understand violence against women. Don't forget, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Johnny, I do want to talk about, and we will get to the court case involving Helen Nasland in a moment, but I feel like we should take things back to the beginning. So for starters, tell me about the Nasland family. Who are they and where are they from? So Helen Naslin comes from a big farming family in central Alberta. She was one of, uh, I believe, eight kids. And she married her late husband, Miles, when she was 19 years old. And they moved to a farm near Holden, Alberta, where they had three sons and ran a grain and cattle operation for many years. Family living in this kind of rural area. In 2011, Helen reports her husband, Miles, missing. I imagine that was kind of a shock at the time for the community. What is it that she and her sons said had happened to him? So in September 2011, like you said, Helen reports Miles has gone missing. They say that his car is gone, one of his handguns is gone, and that he had not been in good mental health, essentially implying that maybe he had gone off somewhere and killed himself. They also suggested that maybe he you know, a few years back had been with the wrong crowd and been roughed up. So police begin looking for him and they don't find any trace and he's missing for six years before they find out what actually happened to him. So he goes missing. There are concerns for his well-being. His family says there are concerns over his mental health. How long before we started seeing cracks in that story? What tipped police off that he may not have actually gone missing in the sense that Helen and her sons were saying? So in August 2017, the police start to learn that one of the three Naslin brothers is talking about what happened to his dad. We're not exactly sure what happened, but the middle son, Daryl, apparently told somebody that, in fact, his dad had been killed and hidden on the farm. And at some point, he agrees to give a statement to RCMP and at about the sixth anniversary of him having gone missing, I'm using air quotes there. Helen and her youngest son, Neil, turned themselves into police. They turned themselves into police. What is it that they admit doing to him? And where is Miles Nasland ultimately found? Miles Nasland is found in a truck toolbox at the bottom of a pond on the Nasland property, the farm near Holden. Police searched the farm after Helen and Neil had 
admit to having killed him uh, and hidden his body, specifically Helen admitting that she had shot him. There's a huge search at this property. They turn up Miles' car crushed in a hole that had been dug with an excavator. And they found his missing gun in a pond, and they found a twenty-two caliber revolver that had been used to kill him in the bottom of another pond. And mm-hmm. Helen and her son, Neil, are charged with first-degree murder and offering indignity to human remains. They're charged with first-degree murder. Do they strike a deal and admit to Miles' death? Yeah, so this case ultimately never goes to trial. Helen and her son plead guilty. Neil admits to essentially having helped hide the body and he gets three years and Helen admits to manslaughter and she's given a very long sentence as part of a plea deal for this. She's given 18 years in prison. They admit to the crimes. Why is it that they said that they felt that they had to kill Miles Nasland? Well, basically they said that the environment Miles Nasland created in the home was one of constant terror, abuse, and violence. They detailed for the prosecution years of physical, mental, emotional abuse. They talked about cases where Miles would get drunk and order them around with guns, intimating that he was going to kill himself and possibly them. There were beatings. Two of Miles' sons described me just being struck as children, and then as adults, these sort of almost bar brawl blow-ups that just destroyed the home. It resulted in serious injuries. Helen described all sorts of financial and emotional and physical abuse. She would talk about sort of the interrogations she would get when she would go anywhere, do anything, see anyone. Basically, she had sort of no life independent from his say-so. And this all came to a head that September. The long weekend was sort of the measuring stick for whether the farm was going to lose money or not that year. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that a hay mining machine broke down and Helen was blamed for this. Miles threw wrenches at her, swore at her, threatened her. This sort of gunplay that they described was in full evidence that weekend. He was drunk and ordering Neil Naslund, his youngest son, and, and Helen around. And the, the Sunday dinner that weekend it apparently wasn't good enough for him and he threw it to the ground, uh, declaring it wasn't fit for a dog. And that was sort of the moment that Helen had had enough and went and got one of the guns and shot him while he was sleeping. Given this long history of abuse by an alcoholic husband, why was it that Helen was given 18 years on a manslaughter conviction, especially considering that she confessed to the murder? Is it the fact that she hid the crime for so long? Is it the fact that it was so brazen, like shooting your intimate partner in the head. What were the reasonings for this long sentence? It was a combination of things, I think. The Crown has said that this is essentially as close to murder as you can get and still have a conviction for manslaughter. Again, she was charged with first-degree murder, which would you know indicate that it was planned and deliberate, and mm-hmm. she didn't have to admit that she intended to kill him, but the Crown sort of nevertheless wanted a very long sentence for this. I think because of the factors you described, the the cover-up, which everyone admits was very serious, there were instances where police were searching for this supposedly missing man that Helen would sort of publicly criticize them, saying, you know, oh, they're not making enough effort to find him where, you know, what, what are they doing? 
he's still missing. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of what attracted this really long sentence, which you know, I think by Canadian standards is long for any sort of crime. I mean, had she been convicted of murder, she would have faced 25 to life in prison. But still, the, the, the number 18, I think, stuck in a lot of people's minds, which is sort of what's made this case so talked about. Now, since the sentencing, this has been back in the courtroom recently. Helen Nasland is appealing her sentence. What grounds, essentially, are they appealing it on? Is it the fact that there were mitigating circumstances and a long history of abuse? It's sort of a weird circumstance because, as I said, she basically agreed to the 18-year sentence. This is what's called a joint submission. So basically, the Crown agrees to come down from the murder charge, but in exchange, she gives up a very long sentence. So it's uncommon that you would have someone who basically agreed to their sentence then appealing it. Mm -hmm. But what she's arguing now is basically that the Crown acted coercively and sort of backing her into a corner to take this sentence. As I mentioned as well, there's the factor that her son was also charged with murder. He ultimately was allowed to plead guilty just to helping hide the body. So she's sort of arguing that those factors sort of led to a miscarriage of justice and that the judge, instead of going along with this sentence, should have looked at this and said, okay, that's not right. We should reduce this. And like you said, her appeals lawyer is now arguing, look, the court didn't properly account for the fact that she was an abused woman and that this sentence is just wildly out of whack with other cases where women have killed their husbands under similar circumstances. The next nearest case that they were able to find in Alberta resulted in an eight-year sentence. Mm -hmm. So this is a pretty large departure from that. And what are experts in this field saying about this sentence Is it a sense that the justice system just doesn't understand these factors that are at play here? Right. And that's sort of the argument in the appeal. Mm -hmm. The term that was used is that this was a case where the judge was viewing this through a gendered lens or maybe should have been viewing it through a gendered lens and didn't. The professor who wrote sort of the book on battered women cases in Canada, Elizabeth Sheehy, spoke out pretty immediately and forcefully saying that this is probably the longest sentence ever handed out in a battered woman case in Canada, short of cases where there were murder convictions, obviously. But there have also been the upswell of support from women's shelters, saying that the court completely misunderstood the factors that lead women to do this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that the judge said in sentencing was that this was a callous and cowardly thing that she did, in that she wasn't an evil person, but there were circumstances that she wasn't able to react appropriately to and that she should have taken other options. And what you hear over and over again from experts on battered women is that, you know, leaving many times is not an option and that the times when a woman's life is most at danger from a abusive partner is right after she leaves. And mm-hmm. her family has come forward to say, look, you, you don't understand the dynamics here. She could not leave. Yeah. It was basically a circumstance where, she was going to die or he was going to die. I mean, you mentioned the family. I do want to touch on that momentarily. What has this ordeal done to the family? How have they been in the 10 years since Miles was killed and then in the last four years since this case was closed and Helen and her son were charged? This has gone from a case that people knew very little about up until last October. Really all anyone knew was that this man who had gone missing in rural Alberta, had been found dead and that his uh, wife and son had been charged. Mm-hmm. But since then, this case has gotten a huge amount of attention to the point that Helen Naslin has kind of become sort of a symbol of women who are forced into these situations. 
And you know, there are many people in the country who think that this was an unjust sentence. So she went from sort of being, you know, a farm wife who couldn't do anything without her husband say so to a symbol of kind of a broader movement who's created a lot of conversation about violence against women. And she's in the Edmonton Institution for Women now. She's in prison. She appeared at her appeal and she's written a couple blog posts thanking her supporters and sort of explaining her circumstances and what her life is like in jail. Mm-hmm. Her eldest son, Wesley, still supports her. He was initially charged with hiding the body, but that was withdrawn. And he's one of the two brothers who has spoken out about what they experienced growing up and sort of why they think that this happened the way it did and and how she didn't have other options. Uh, Her youngest son, Neil, has also spoken out. He went to jail for three years for this and is now paroled. I mean, they basically tell very similar stories about getting into fights with their father, not being able to watch Saturday morning cartoons because he'd be hung over and filled with rage. And so they're both speaking out in her defense, arguing that the sentence is unjust. The middle brother, Daryl, who spoke to police, has kept a lower profile. I haven't really asked sort of what the relationship is with him, but I, I gather it's not a good one. You know, the appeal was heard in court this past week. When do we expect we might get a decision Well, that's sort of guesswork with the Court of Appeal. They typically will hear a case, ask questions, and then go off and write their decision. And they'll ultimately have to determine whether they want to impose a new sentence that's shorter, send it back for maybe another sentencing hearing, or just leave it alone. I would hesitate to try to guess which way they'll go. I mean, there were a lot of questions from the justices on this one. I think it's going to be a very tricky decision for them. Well, it is a fascinating and sad case and one that we'll be keeping a close eye on. Johnny, thanks for your time. Thank you. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Johnny Wakefield. More from him at edmontonjournal.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. 